Did you know that not all laughs are created equal? When you call my father-in-law's phone, we, we call him Big Dad. He called his grandpa Big Dad, so he's Big Dad in our family. When you call Big Dad's phone, you quickly discover that he has a custom ringtone. And he's had it for years now. Big Dad's ringtone is a small audio file of my son Logan at age five or six, belly laughing. So whenever Big Dad's phone rings, you hear my son laughing over and over and over again. And whenever you hear Big Dad's phone ring, you can't help but also laugh or at least smile a bit because there's nothing like the sound of a little kid unleashing glee into the world to make you feel just for a few seconds like all is right. You ever had a good laugh? Like just like a good laugh, like side aching, can barely breathe kind of laugh. Man, there is nothing more hope-inducing in the world than laughter. But not all laughs are created equal. Sometimes we laugh in delight, sheer delight. Sometimes, though, we laugh in despair, in disbelief, because we feel so much pain, because we feel hopeless. Sometimes that kind of laughter is haunting. I've talked to people who have recounted their abuse and laughed. I've spoken to some people who just lost their job, and they tell me the story about how they lost their job, and then they laugh. I've spoken to people who told me that the cancer is back, and then they laughed. And that kind of laugh, sometimes it's a self-deprecating laugh, sometimes it's a cynical laugh, sometimes it's an awkward laugh, that has more to do with like resignation and despair. Maybe you've known that laugh too. Not all laughs are created equal. So today, as we continue our series in the book of Genesis, in this series, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, today we find a God who cares about laughter, who cares about actually both kinds of laughter. So I was actually prepping this sermon this week. Um, We're in Genesis chapter 18. I was gonna preach the whole of Genesis 18 today. I was gonna kind of hurry through the first half of Genesis 18 to get to the second half. And about halfway through the week, I'm like, you know what? This is two sermons. So I stopped and we're making the first half a sermon and then we'll make the next half next week's sermon. uh, Because I think there's something in here that we have to hear about a God who meets us in our laughter. So if you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 18. If not, the verses will be here on the screen. Let me read it to you. This is Genesis 18, verse 1. It says, And the Lord appeared to him, it's Abram, Abraham at this point, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him, and when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. 
Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So last week we talked about this encounter that God had with Abram, changed his name to Abraham, changed Sarai's name to Sarah, and gave them this sign of the covenant circumcision. I know it was a bit of an awkward conversation last week, but this gift of circumcision. Here now we move from Genesis 17 to Genesis 18 and we find the story and the, the, the story changes. All of a sudden it moves to this kind of long prolonged scene at the tent under the trees. So Abraham is yet again hanging out under the oak trees the oaks of Mamre. I don't know if you've noticed this, when you read Genesis, whenever Abraham shows up near trees, pay attention. Something's about to happen. It happened in Genesis 12 when uh, God called him to go to the land. He finally went to the land and there he encountered God under the oak trees, the oaks of seeing, and he saw God there. Also in Genesis 22, which is to come, we'll find he goes up to Mount Moriah and there's an animal that gets caught in the trees in the thicket there. So here you have another tree scene, kind of almost this like Eden recreation scene under the trees. And it really is, it's a most unlikely story because it's taking place in the heat of the day. Anyone ever been to the Middle East before? Anyone been to the middle of the desert before? Anyone know when you don't want to go out and hang out anywhere? It's the heat of the day. Like you intentionally don't do anything in the heat of the day. You find shade in the heat of the day. You stay home in the heat of the day and it's the lazy time because you just don't go out in the heat of the day. It will kill you. So at this very unlikely time in the heat of the day, Abraham is seen relaxing under the shade, under the tree, under the tent. And he gets visitors And it's a really peculiar scene because the author of Genesis tells us that the Lord comes to visit him. And the next verse, verse two, it says, and there are these three visitors coming. You're like, who is this? And I won't go into that can of worms. It's a beautiful picture of what's happening here. So Abraham and Sarah are in their tent. They're at home. They're under the tree. It's stinking Middle Eastern hot. They get visitors. What do they do? Here's the power of hospitality. Here's the beauty of their culture. In their culture, when guests come, it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter when they come. It doesn't matter why they come. When a guest comes, even an uninvited guest at the most inconvenient time, you you, you welcome them. You open your door to them. You open your house to them. You do whatever it takes to have them come and feel like the most welcome guest ever. 
You treat them royally, which is exactly what Abraham does. These first few verses are really stunning as you watch Abraham. You sense the urgency. He, he wants these visitors to stay. He doesn't want them to pass by. He wants to engage with them. And so you see this picture of attentive hospitality from Abraham. I just put some of these down. He, when he sees them, I'll just true confession, like sometimes when visitors come to my door, I'm like, who is it? <laughs> right, do I want to open the door or not? Right? He sees them, he runs to them. When he meets them, he bows down before them. He calls them Lord, just in a very respectful, like my Lord kind of way. He pleads for them to stay with him. He offers to wash their feet. He says, I want you to find shade under the tree. He says, let me get a morsel of bread for food. He seeks their refreshment. Next slide. He then has these urgent requests. Hey, Sarah, quick, get flour. Let's make some cakes. Three sayas of flour. That's 22 liters of flour. I don't know if you have a, a baker's in the room. That's a ton of flour for three guests. That is just like this exorbitant amount of flour and a ton of bread cakes being made. And he runs to get meat from the herd and tells his person to prepare it quickly. And then after all of it, the curds and the meat and the bread and the food, and then he stands there by the tree. <laughs> right? You see Abraham's like, huh? How's the curds? How's the bread? And he's attentive to them watching them, his guests, the uninvited guests at the awkward time of the day, and he is just the picture of attentive hospitality. And I think I could probably even preach a pretty good sermon on attentive hospitality from this text. How the, the sleepy nap time of Abraham turned into the great British bake-off Oaks of Mamre edition. And he's running and pleading and preparing and getting meat and curds and milk. And he's this flurry of activity because he wants the guests to be welcomed in honor. Welcomes them with gusto. And I could preach a sermon about hospitality to others. I could preach a sermon about preparing hospitality in your home to welcome God as the unannounced guest. I think that would preach. How many sayas of flower do you have for God? But here's the thing about Genesis 18. As beautiful a picture it is about Abraham and his attentiveness and his hospitality and his gathering all the things for these unannounced guests, this story isn't about Abraham. Here's the thing about Genesis 18. All of his hospitality is setting up an encounter that has really nothing to do with him. The point of this divine visitation isn't about him. It's about something else. It's about someone else. Look at verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. 
the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Do you see? Somehow in this story, God somehow embodied in these three visitors, come, messengers come with God. But God isn't there for Abraham. You know who he's there for? He's there for Sarah. Verse nine is really profound. (laughs) This is the question. Like, hey, Abraham, thanks for the milk and the curds and the food and the bread and thanks for all that. Hey, Abraham, where's your wife? Where's Sarah, your wife? Because she's the one actually we're here to see. God loves the where question, doesn't he? If you've read the story of Genesis before, this is not the first time God asked these kinds of questions. Next slide. When we remember back in the garden when Adam and Eve first sinned, God comes and says, where are you? Genesis 4, 9, Cain and Abel. Where is Abel, your brother? Genesis 18, 9. Where is Sarah, your wife? And just so you know, it's not because he doesn't know where they are on any of those occasions. He really knows where they are. But when he asked the where question, you can go back. When he asked the where question, it points to the person that he's pursuing. Genesis 18 actually is about God coming to pursue Sarah. And so this time in Genesis 18, God has someone that he wants to speak with and speak to and engage this is really, really important. I think this story and this scene is really critical to understand the Abraham-Sarah narrative because we already know so far at this point in the story, God has actually had lots of encounters with Abraham. You can go to that next slide now. Genesis 12, God calls Abram to leave his family and his land. In Genesis 15, uh, Abram has this elaborate covenant ceremony, the blood path ceremony where these animals are are slain and laid open and then uh, Abram gets put into a deep sleep and then God himself walks through the middle of the animals in this smoking fire pot flaming torch. And this ominous, like, God and Abram have this incredible, powerful, deep encounter. Even Genesis 17, where God changes the name and then calls for circumcision and engages that story from last week. All right, God has had many, many encounters with Abram and Abraham. And so this time now, an unexpected visit in the heat of the day, under the shade of the tents and the trees, among a feast, God comes as the uninvited guest, and he surprisingly shows up, and the person he's interested in is Sarah. Where's Sarah, your wife? And some of you are thinking, it's about darn time. God has something for her, too. And I know through all these weeks of talking about this story, we've mentioned how hard this whole journey thing must have been for Abram or Abraham, all of the waiting, all of the promises, all of the decades, all of the things that have happened. It must have been hard for Abraham, but come on. For Sarah, I would argue she's been in exponentially more pain. It's been harder for her. You see, in this culture, for a woman, your value and worth came down to your childbearing. From a very young age, 
To have a child was paramount. It was your life, it was your purpose, it was your everything. And from the very first time we meet Sarah in Genesis chapter 11, we learn she's barren. Or to put it in another terms, culturally speaking, everyone's pointing the finger at her. What's the problem? Her. Who's got the issue? She does. What's wrong with you? Why can't you have a child? Why, can't, why, why is Abraham having to go through all this problem and pain? Well, because her, she's barren. She's carrying an enormous amount of shame, an enormous amount of weight, an enormous amount of pressure and cultural uh, just issues that cause her to feel like what in the world is going on? She feels the weight of this all. Then the whole Hagar thing, that's, again, I don't want to take her off the hook, but you understand all of that pressure leads her to say, I'm going to come up with a solution. Here, Abraham, sleep with my maidservant, Hagar, and that's how we can have a child and you can have an heir. It's that pressure that leads to that. And then that whole thing blows up, and the whole Hagar situation goes haywire, and she's bitter at her, angry at her. So it's really, really important for you to know here in Genesis chapter 18 that that woman, Sarah, who's endured all of this problem and pressure and pain, that's the one that God comes to the tent to pursue. He's here for her. Yes, there have been spoken promises through the years, but they were spoken to Abram. And yes, there were encounters before, but they were encounters with Abram. And yes, there have been name changes given before, but they were given to Abram. And now God's coming to Sarah. To her pain, to her shame, to her questions, to this 90-year-old frame. So what does God first say? He says to Abraham, where's Sarah, your wife? Abraham says, she's in the tent, meaning she can hear you. (laughs) She's not far away. She's right here. She's in the tent. And then God speaks, and this is what he says. I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, you've got to love verse 11 in the, in the passage. This is for us. Like, just in case you've missed the story so far. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. Like, just in case you're new to the story, they're old. Like, old, old. Like, advanced in years old. And then he tells us, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah in case you have to connect the dots. I have a wife and two daughters. I know the way of women, which has ceased to be with Sarah. This is what makes the story so absurd. Like, the story is so over the top. It's so out there. A 90-year-old woman, a 99-year-old man, and God shows up and says, I'm not here to talk to Sarah. Where's your wife? I'm going to be back next year, this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son, which is really important for God to reiterate because Abraham keeps thinking, he's given me promises that I'm going to have a son. So he keeps like, ah, oh, Hagar? I'll, I'll figure this out some other way. <laughs> There's a little wiggle room here. Who's the mother? Maybe I'll figure out a plan. No, God comes and says, no, this time next year, this one, your wife, 90-year-old Sarah, she is going to have the child. 
So then Sarah, who's again, technically, like she's a part of the story so far, but she's, she's been preparing some food. She's been kind of in the tent. She's listening to the story. What does she do? What's her response? She laughs. She laughs. I wonder what that sounded like. Did it sound like Big Dag's ringtone? Probably wasn't a belly laugh. In fact, if I have to interpret her laughter, I'm going to let her other words set the stage for what her laugh may have sounded like. My guess is that her laughter sounded more like a laughter of despair and a laughter of pain. Because here's what she says. This is the next verse, verse 12. She laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out, (laughs) my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? That word, worn out, it's a derogatory term that she says to herself. The Hebrew word there is a, is a word used to describe clothing that was worn out and then discarded. She's calling herself an old rag. I'm worn out, past my prime. So my guess is that her laughter wasn't like, yes! God's promises to me are being fulfilled. She's like, ha, 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 yeah, this old rag? She speaks, she's trashing herself. You get a sense of what's happening inside of her. She's like, I don't, I don't know about that. Maybe you know that laugh. Maybe you've heard that laugh. Maybe you've laughed that laugh this week. So when Sarah first laughed, it's not because she's amazed. It's not because she is believing in the promises of God. She's laughing at the absolute absurdity of everything that's happening, and she's raw. And the barrenness is still too real, too close to home, too deeply embedded in her life and story than for her to somehow just pass through this whole thing. She laughs. But I just want you to notice in this story how tender God is as he comes to her. Even if you contrast, like God came to Abraham in in darkness, dead animals, smoking fire pot, and a flaming torch. And God comes to Sarah to have this intentional conversation after a feast in her tent. And he shows up in her laughter of despair. But there's something I've never really noticed before as I was reading through the story. He comes and he he gives some details and he says it twice. He says it in verse 10. He says it also in verse 14. He says, I will surely return to you next year and Sarah shall have a son. And sometimes when I read the scriptures, it becomes so just out there in almost like fantasy land that I don't realize the, the, the humanity of the story. But he's saying, in a year... I'm going to come to you, which implies that a baby here is going to be born. How are babies born? Through sex. (laughs) Ask your mother. This baby is going to be born through Abraham and Sarah having a sexual relationship together. 
It's not just going to be miracle baby. It's a miracle of a baby, but it's not going to be miracle, miracle baby. It's going to be Abraham and Sarah having a sexual encounter together. And then a year from now, God says, I'll come back and you're going to have a son. At the end of verse 12, she laughs. After I'm worn, I'm an old rag, I'm worn out, tossed aside, my Lord is old. Do you get the fact? He's old. So am I. Shall I have pleasure? And whenever I've read this verse before, I've, I've, I've read it as, shall I, have, shall I have the pleasure now of having a child? Shall I have the pleasure now of the promises being fulfilled? That's not what that word means. That word does not mean what you think it means. <laughs> Next slide. That word pleasure is the Hebrew word edna, and it means sexual pleasure or sexual delight. And here and now, Sarah is thinking through the fact of like, me and Abraham are going to have sex again? And there's a whole lot woven into that. And maybe like, yeah, well, they're old. They probably weren't having that kind of relationship anyway. Maybe. Just because of their age. Maybe. Um, I would imagine that the whole Hagar incident probably played into that too. And it's more than just their age. There's a whole lot of emotions. And my guess is there's a whole lot of tension and there's a whole lot of brokenness happening between Abraham and Sarah and their marriage. And Sarah's processing this. Shall I have pleasure? Man, the Bible is crazy. <laughs> Talked about circumcision last week, married sex with old people this week. Abraham and Sarah are old. And reading between the lines, as one scholar put this, God shows up in the heat of the day to have a conversation around the tent and basically is saying to Sarah, pardon me if this sounds graphic, but I want you to have sex by faith. I never thought about how difficult that may be for them. Not just I'm old, but all that goes into that. And as others have read this story and talked about this story, they, they comment that it's as though God doesn't want to just give them a child. He does want to give them a child, and he does want to give them an heir because he has this plan of salvation through the world, but he also wants to give them a marriage. And there's also some things that he needs to repair with them as husband and wife. They had to take st steps of faith to believe the promises of God. And one year from now, he will return and Sarah will have a son. And she laughs. And she tries to hide it <laughs> and deny her laughter. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> now I just imagine this probably with a smile and a wink. Oh no, you laughed. You laughed. What a funny little dialogue there. You laughed. And I hate to spoil the story for you, but that wasn't the last time that Sarah laughed because she laughs again. Go to Genesis chapter 21, so sneaking ahead in the story. 
Genesis 21, 1 says, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Which means? Laughter. They named their boy Laughter. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, just like chapter 17 said to do, as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? (laughs) Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And Sarah laughs again. Isaac means laughter. Hmm. Not every laugh is created equal. But in time, for Sarah, for this woman who laughed in despair, it's a real sweet ending for her story because now she laughs in delight. She has laughter. She has laughter. She has laughter. And she says everyone else is going to laugh when they hear this story, too. And she's not afraid of that or ashamed of that. She's like, yeah, tell, the, tell that story when, uh, when Sarah nurses the baby. Tell that one. That's a good one. And everyone's going to laugh over me, not make fun of me. But be delighted to hear that there's a God. Everyone will be delighted to hear that there's a God who can turn laughters of despair into laughter of delight. It's possible to tell the gospel, the good, the good news, it's possible to tell that as a laughter story. Laughter that due to sin and suffering brought about great despair. but that through the work of God becomes laughter of delight. But before you end the story, you do have to kind of catch the punchline of this story. If we can go back to Genesis chapter 18, verse four, four, excuse me, verse 14. In the midst of this laughter story, and God's encountering Sarah and Abraham and this laughter, this is what God says. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Because I even imagine this morning as you're hearing this story, you're like, yeah, that's a great, nice story of these old people thousands of years ago that had this crazy encounter with God and they had a baby in their old age. And you're like, that doesn't really happen. That doesn't happen in my life. I know of a few things that are too hard for God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's a good question. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Uh, Another way of translating that word hard actually is probably more properly translated as wonderful. Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? It's a great question. Instead of the story being about what's hard and easy, the real question has to do about our understanding of wonder Are you you able to comprehend the wonderfulness of God? 
Or has the wonder of God shrunken down and been lost in the pain? Do you realize how much we as human beings run on wonder? That's an idea that G.K. Chesterton once talked about. (laughs) We as humans, we live for wonder. We long for wonder. We spend billions of dollars a year trying to get somebody else to give us wonder. It's why we watch movies. It's why we go to theme parks. It's why we watch sports. It's why we go shopping. We want wonder, and we've lost it. And so we pay other people to tell us about wonder. Netflix is about wonder. TikTok is about wonder. We are consumers of wonder. G.K. Chesterton, this British author from many years ago, he actually he noted that children are closer to wonder than adults are. He, this one is my favorite G.K. Chesterton quotes. He said, this is proved by the fact that when we are very young children, we do not need fairy tales. We only need tales. Because mere life is interesting enough. A child of seven is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door and saw a dragon. But a child of three is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door. (laughs) At age three, you're like, Tommy opened a door? No way. By age seven, we need to hear that it was a dragon. By age 37, we're like, I don't even care about Tommy. My life's horrible. Too much pain, too much suffering, too much difficulty. And we've lost an ability to catch the wonder of God. And we just grow cynical. And we laugh like Sarah does. Might God's invitation to us today be an invitation to the wonder of God? Is there anything too wonderful for him? Is there anything too hard for him? I know with a story like this, some people would say, oh yeah, okay, I get the story. Dream your dream then. Like this is like Disney. Anything you can think of will come true. If you want to fly, fly. That's not the lesson of the story. Just dream a big dream and eventually it'll come true. I'm like, no, like I will never fly. Like, an airplane, I'll fly, but like, I will never fly. There are things that I can dream of that may not come true. Abraham isn't the hero of the story. Attentive hospitality. Sarah's not the hero of the story. She laughs at the promise of God, and she tries to deny it. Who's the hero of the story? What's the point of the story? It's about the wonder of God that comes through the child of promise. This story points to the child of promise, the child of laughter, to the one who is given, provided by God, the one who comes, who fulfills the promises of God. The child of promise is the hero, and it's not even Isaac. Isaac points to a greater Isaac, the greater child of promise, who is laughter, who actually has the power to forgive sin, the power to change a life, the the power to turn despair into delight, the power to forgive, the power to heal, the power to reunite humanity with God. So may our wonder be filled by learning more about him. Is there anything too wonderful for God? God wants to restore your life. He wants to restore your hope.
He wants to restore your wonder, your joy through Jesus because nothing is too difficult for him. Not even reconciling broken humanity, sinful humanity with a holy God. Nothing is too difficult for him. May you come to know the child of promise. This Jesus who changes our laughter forever. And today, like Sarah, God is asking, is there anything that holds my wonder back? And so I just, my encouragement today for all the Sarahs in the room, and you can be a female Sarah or a male Sarah, for all those who laugh in despair, for all those who feel worn out and discarded, may I remind you of the child of promise, Jesus, who fully displays the wonder of God. I'm praying that God would meet you in your laughter. And some in our community, all they have tasted recently is a lot of the laughter of despair. God hears, God knows. God takes the time to meet Sarah in the tent. I believe he wants to come and meet you in your laughter too. He wants us to offer our pain to the only one who can do something about it. Leaning in, believing, trusting in Jesus. Because in him, hear this, my friends, in him you will laugh again. And it's hard to believe. But that's the invitation again today. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I feel it. Lord, in the room, the tenderness of this story that brings up all that stuff, all the, all the pain, the disappointment, the heartache, the challenges, the being let down, getting your hope up, being dashed. Lord, I, I know that because I know these faces. I've heard the stories. I know. I know that sometimes that laughter of despair feels like the only thing that we can do. The dismissive, self-protective, ha-ha, that reveals a heartache. God, thank you for coming to Sarah. God, thank you for coming to us. Thank you for the child of promise. God, I pray, I pray in this room, even this morning, the ability to trust that you can redeem. That there's nothing too hard for you. There's nothing too wonderful for you. And may you, may you, may you heal us in our cynicism and pain and open us up to the wonder, the beauty, the power, the majesty of the kingdom of heaven made possible through the great child of promise, Jesus. I I don't want to single anyone out today. But before we all stand to sing, if you're someone today that's like, I know that laughter of despair and you don't have to say anything, you don't have to explain anything, would you just stand up this morning that I could pray for you? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus, <laughs> I offer these, my brothers and sisters, to you. Or you have heard their cry, you have seen their tears, you have known their pain. You know the despair that says, I will never laugh again. Not that way. I pray, Lord, even as they stood up, (laughs) 
Lord, would you honor that as an act of faith before you? And would you bless them? Holy Spirit, would you come and meet them now? Would you be turning their laughter? May you be redeeming and healing and restoring. God, I pray. Thank you for your tenderness. Thank you for your kindness. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.